The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often you wake up in the morning and you wonder, how can we have double or triple category growth? How can we maximize the opportunities that we have in front of us? What's the best way of maximizing our growth? And how do we fix that if it's broken? To answer those questions, Dave Radlow. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. Listen, if you can answer uh, even one of these questions, uh, you know, I think you're going to be celebrated because, the, you know, we probably ought to give you a parade because most uh, companies are having pretty serious problems with these uh, types of questions. So, uh, you know, so what do you think? I mean, what uh, with the companies you look at, uh, you know, what are they doing to uh, accelerate and maximize their growth? It's what they're doing is that they're maximizing all their valuable resources and have an excellent value proposition. They're able to pitch great. They have outstanding team. All right, wait, 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 wait. This that's a, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Okay. Let's, do, let's do one thing at a time. One thing. The most important one is the value proposition because it starts at the top. You got. So how it. do they know? How do they know that they have an excellent value proposition? You know if you got an excellent value proposition, if you're able to take it into test or in the market and it's growing and it's meeting your customers' uh, expectations or, and you're starting to see growth that way with a small, fast-growing segment of a large category. So a small segment of a large category, how do companies, you know, a lot of companies want to own the whole category. I mean, they want to take charge of the whole thing, you know, so how do they, uh, how do they carve out a, a niche for themselves in, as a subcategory? What they have to do, it's, it, it's innovation. And it wasn't until recently with Andy Jazzy, the Amazon, that said, you know, it doesn't work for us big companies anymore just to simply wait until a small company disrupts. We need to be disruptors, even if we're big. He turned it on their head, on its head. So the idea is whether you're a small company and you're disruptive mindset, or if you're a larger company and you want to get into the game, you have to have a growth mindset. 
And so let's go back to this value proposition thing. So this is not something that can be uh, determined in a boardroom or on a conference table. It can't be uh, done in a laboratory. It's got to be field tested. Uh, what, what are the things that let companies know that they've got a good value proposition? Just give us some specific things that, uh, that would happen when you have a good one. Well, let me, let me just go back to us, the way we were able to you know, innovate and accelerate a billion-dollar specialty egg category. And we did that starting with Eggland's Best, with a healthy product that was segmented. And then we were able to own cage-free, and then six-packs, 18-packs, and free range. And then the next thing you know, we had a category that consumers were stopping right there. And within seven seconds, they were in the, uh, the higher price category. And then we put in secondary brands and then private label brands and put eggs in the bag. And then we did all of these things to turn it into a billion dollar category. It didn't happen overnight, but we saw the opportunity that people wanted something better. And they weren't getting it. And we were able to focus on that and give them what they wanted. Did you, uh, did you ride the wave that was already starting to crest? Or did you create the wave through your own uh, you know, marketing? Well, the consumers created the waves. We just jumped the board. So, so the consumers we saw were, that. So consumers yeah. were already starting to ask for natural products, anti products that didn't hurt animals and is, is at least as necessary. Uh, so they were already asking for that. And you just, you rode the wave. That's, that's what you did. Yeah. I mean, you can call it riding the wave. I mean, honestly, did we help in that situation? Yes. I mean, did we do everything in our power to see and check on consumer trends? Because you're taking a look at trends that way organic lifestyles, healthy lifestyles, humane lifestyle, just concern in that way. And then we're able to say, okay, fine. You, we've got products for everybody and we've got packaging for everybody. So if you want a pretty package, we have it. And the idea was really, and whether or not it's eggs or whether or not it's electronics, what have you, is to be able to tap in to the areas so, all right. So the value proposition, uh, you know, you, you kind of identify the, the trend, you, you kind of get organized around it, you sub-segment your category, uh, you kind of make sure your value proposition is in line with the things that consumers want. So now let's talk about growth. How do you, how do you put your message into the marketplace? Uh, you know, how do companies, wh what does it take for a company to have a disruptive mindset? Because some companies are sleeping at the switch. Some companies are killers. And, and, and is, is it leadership? Is it just the kind of people that are there and they can't be fixed? I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, it, it, takes, it takes leadership and it takes a team to drive, but it also takes great ideas. And, and believe it or not, small stuff. If you're a small player, you're willing to put 25,000 to 50,000 in, in an unproven idea where a lot of large companies won't even do that. And they say, when it gets down the pipeline and, you know, we're going to keep our, our cost uh, very, very low and we're going to just, you know, when it's something worthwhile, we'll buy it or we'll get into it later. So it's like a mindset. It's like a disruptive mindset versus a cartel mindset. Hey, let's talk about that cartel thing because you, your book is the cartel. What's the name of your book again? 
That's the principles of cartel disruption. Okay, so when you talk about cartel, are you talking about like the oil cartel? I mean, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's whether or not it's in it, it's uh, it's basically a group of companies, manufacturers uh, uh, that get together, and it could be countries in some situations that will get together in order to keep uh, prices low and keep competition down and I'm sorry, and, and keep prices high. So it's not a mindset based upon, it's like we want to roll up or we want to keep our costs low and want our profit margins have to be high, but we're not thinking about the consumer and the changing trends and what the consumer and what the customer is really looking for, not just today, but in a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, it's, it's a whole separate mindset to sit there and say, we're going to have a pipeline of products that we're going to go after what the consumer is looking for now and in the future. So instead of being uh, consumer focused, they're really more abusive power focused. It's, it's more of abuse of power is probably not the right way to say it. It's more like they have been, been schooled with the herd mentality to, to keep things going and that anything that's disruptive is not good because and our goal is, with the cartel mindset, is to prolong the time in which a disruptor is able to get into the market. But eventually, the disruptor will come in. And, you know, I was speaking to an audience of people recently, and I was talking about some ideas, and is this possible? Is this possible? And there were a bunch of engineers there, and uh, there, there are physics that say it's not possible. And I said, is, is there anything in the last 50 years that you thought was impossible that now they're doing it in some different way? And of course, there are lots of examples of that. And I said, I just want you to remember one thing. And that is that in a garage somewhere, there's a couple of kids working on something that's going to kick your butt. And then they're going to get 20 million from a venture capital outfit. And they're going to go do something. And then they're going to get another 100 million from somebody else on the second round. And, and you're going to get wiped out. So I wouldn't say that it's not possible. I would start thinking, you know, these big companies don't see that that pattern. Is that what you're saying? That they yeah, just they, they don't see it as as a priority or what they should be doing or they're schooled on when it gets big enough, we'll buy it. You know, when it gets big enough, we'll buy it. Until that time occurs, we're not going to be spending our time on innovation and I take, for example, a student at, at Tufts University of mine, uh, Alex Rappaport, and he's the CEO of Twitter, and he's found a way through technology to, uh, to really cut back on uh, pollution with a wafer on an industrial basis. And he's now past the seed round, and he's going into an A round, and he's raised whatever, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars, and his company's growing like a weed. And- you know, I mean, big companies weren't interested in that. They don't want to get their hands dirty and roll up their sleeves on, on that side. I take a look at Joe Meyer, okay, of Exec Thread, who's basically, and he was on my podcast, Sustainable Leadership and Disruptive Growth in the Technology Category. And, you know, he's done it like two or three times with 
uh, selling tech businesses to uh, AOL and beyond beyond that. But now he's doing it with human resources on a social mission basis to give people an opportunity to have hidden jobs, right? We're going to find out on an aggregated basis, hidden jobs. You subscribe to my service. And now he's got 100,000 people subscribed to his service, turning over hidden jobs. I mean, believe it or not, he's got 10 people in the company. That's it. And so I, I take a look at some of this tech stuff that gets done that is just ends up being hundreds of millions and billions of dollars with 10 people. Why? They get the mindset. They're willing to grind. They're willing to tactically execute, roll up their sleeves and do what it takes. You know, you know, to me, what the problem with these big company uh, mindset of uh, when it gets big enough, we'll just buy it, is that these little companies that are venture funded and they're funded by professional people, professional money people, because I'm, I'm in the money business and I, mean, I know how these people think. The valuation blows right by what the big companies can typically even afford. I mean, some of these companies are much more valuable than the whole company that the company wants to buy them. So whoever this competitor is that you're talking about that's sitting there uh, lounging around for a while, uh, the valuation gets to be so large that they can't control this competitor. And then once the beast is out of the cage, uh, it's over. And then and then the big company starts to suffer. And I don't understand why they they don't see the lesson because this has been going on for 20 years now. And and it's uh, it's a really, I mean, I think you're right. I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I just don't understand why these big guys don't see the lesson. Uh, and maybe it's they're so arrogant that they don't think it's possible that anything bad could happen to them. Look at newspapers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you do see some things with on one side of the spectrum with like an Andy Jazzy, you know, who is a disruptor and a new product development guy. And he just happened to come through the corporate ranks. And so because he's at the top, all of a sudden he says, oh, no, we're going to put a lot of money into new product development and, and development because that's who he is and it's part of his DNA. But he's really the... Uh, He's really the exception and not the rule. Yeah, I, I think a lot of these companies are really hurting. And, you know, part of the part of the thing is that a lot of these big companies, and this is not meant to uh, be, uh, you know, excessively uh, harsh, but they kind of they kind of succeed because of their own girth. I mean, they're so big that they, they just keep rolling along. They got so much momentum. They just keep going. But uh, but, you know, then, you know, look at look at companies in the uh, automotive industry. I mean, they're. That industry is changing. It's changing from mechanical to electrical. It, it, it just the whole business is changing. Uh, the way it's being done is changing. A lot of big companies that supply those industries, I, I don't think they even know what steps to take to make changes. I, I don't think they even know where to go to get advice. Uh, and they, they call somebody like Bain or McKinsey. And I don't know that those guys are the best guys because they're not really the guys that are working in the trenches doing little deals, thinking the way little guys think. It, it takes a whole different mindset um, and they have to be willing to get trained in that mindset. And a lot of them don't want to get trained in the mindset. They're trained in a mindset of a big company and they have a lot of people and a lot of lawsuits and a lot of problems. And they just, you know, they just play defense and they're not playing offense, as you say. Yeah. And, and, and they see the world in a certain way too. They, uh, they, they've written the rules to go a certain way and big companies kind of believe that it's our way or the highway. Uh, 
uh, until somebody closes that highway. <laughs> and, and, and it happens. And it's, it's, you know, listen, isn't it something like every 20 years, 20% of the, uh, uh, you know, Fortune 500 turns over somehow or another because there's a acquisition, dispositions, closures, whatever, the delistings. I mean, these big companies aren't guaranteed uh, to ride forever. No, they're certainly uh, not there to ride forever. And if they, they heeded the advice that they needed to, I mean, on the other side, on the positive side is it gives a lot of great opportunity to people that are willing to jump in and take the risk and go after it to really make a difference, whether or not it's in sustainability or, or technology, because the way it's structured right now. And I, I certainly hope that additional programs will come out and whoever funds them, I certainly hope some of the corporate types will start funding them. And that would even be, be better, you know? So that would be that would be great. But how about how about the middle market companies, the companies that predominantly listen to our show? Are they um, where do you where do you find them? Do you, do you find them to be as stubborn or do you find them to be a little more aggressive or do you find that they just don't know what the hell to do at all? Well, it, it's it's all based on, on on their specific opportunity that they're going in and, and what the challenges are and who's in their market. And it, it's a matter of of them seeing what their pain point is and really be willing to be aware and, and to reach out uh, to you, reach out to people like me and say, listen, you know, I, I understand. I really do want to um, transform my results and possibly reframe things and be open to be listening to see where can we go and where am I missing stuff? because it's important to do that. You need to have step one there, which is to have, be aware and be willing to listen. Yeah, I, I, uh, I worry about some of these companies. I, I think that, um, especially the middle-sized companies, I think a lot of them would like to be more aggressive, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to integrate, uh, you know, and, and they'll, they'll, it, it shows up like this. Like, uh, you know, we're in this business, uh, you know, one of the trends I talk about all the time is a subscription membership recurrence, the, you know, that repeatable revenue that's become very predominant in, in companies across the uh, spectrum and, and certain kinds of companies, they just don't know how to integrate it. They're like, we don't know what to do. Well, just because you don't know what to do doesn't mean that there's not a solution. I mean, there probably are people who know what to do and you've got to get around those people. And, and I think a lot of them, are, they don't have the networks to uh, to reach out and, and find you know maybe guys like us. Yeah, it's that that's certainly possible that they don't you know have the networks and but if and I want to give them that opportunity that if they they do have interest in, in learning that they can and that's the bottom line is that there are these avenues to learn more, to be aware, to see, frankly, what you're leaving on the table. Hey, so what, what kind of resources would you recommend people go to for, uh, you know, beside your own book? And, you know, I mean, yeah, uh, which, which is probably, I, it's probably I, I, a great resource, great place for people to start. But I, mean, I, I always, I always say this, that, yeah, sure. I mean, you can whet your appetite with my book or the sustainable leadership podcast and your podcast and the second book and all that, it just whets your appetite. 
there are there are local places that you can go to, whether or not it's um, community colleges, whether or not it's colleges. Uh, there are people, there are specialists in every type of of thing in every single industry in the world that can spawn ideas. You can certainly go to davidradlow.com and reach out. And I, I offer a free assessment uh, right on the right on my uh, website. So you know where you can just see for yourself, where are you now? Because you need to learn where you are in order to incrementally improve. And uh, between those websites and between uh, you and I and uh, the community colleges and colleges and industry associations and friends of friends and friends of industry colleagues, you can, you can certainly have a list of people that are experts in what you think you need to have reviewed and looked at. And for that matter, be a sounding board. Yeah, you know, let's uh, changing uh, changing gears just a little bit. Um, I was recently talking to some uh, some executives from a, a public company, uh, and they're growing through acquisition. They're not growing organically; they're growing through acquisition. Yet, they're uh, and although they've grown a lot, their market cap, their stock market cap, has not changed in about five years. I mean, their stock price and their market cap has really not improved in about five years. Uh, you know, any any thoughts on that situation? Uh. Well, I mean, they they have grown organically, and they I say look at it in any way. I, I have a company that I've worked with that, frankly, was in a similar situation, and I said, "Screw it, let's go private." Enough of this nonsense. I mean, the market isn't really showing the value of the company. Let's take the damn thing private, and then we'll go from there. And they're. They're really seriously considering it. I mean, the other ways are just uh, uh, turning on the engine of new product development and organic pipeline. And what segments haven't we taken a look at and do an analysis that way on, uh, you know, where you can go and and what uh, places and, and niches that you're not involved in. So, you know, go from there. You know, listen, a lot of CEOs, um, grow, uh, you know, by acquisition. I mean, it's a common strategy that companies use, sure. uh, partly because it's it's easier than growing organically through sales and other kinds of things. Um, what, what, what's your thoughts on that as far as a, a growth strategy? I mean, is it uh, in, the, in the long run, does it really work or do you end up with a bunch of General Electric situations and some of these other kinds of companies? Well, I mean, there, there are sometimes... I'm involved in one situation where there's a strategic acquisition going on. And, um, you know, we're, we're really, really excited about it because we're going to be able to take a VP of, of sales and turn them into a chief revenue officer and turn a company from, you know, 40 million to 65 million. So, I mean, we're excited about that situation because there's synergy there. Um, in order to make both companies stronger and move down the road in a positive way. So, you know, it, it, it really, uh, you know, I'm for it. I'm for growing both ways. I think growth is good both ways. And it, it can really, uh, really improve things. Now, you're also pointing out that if you get too big, then it's going to be detrimental. Well, you know, I mean, you just got to keep growing. Yeah, you know, that's my. You know, there, there aren't that many companies like Berkshire Hathaway that 
um, are just a conglomerate of many, many different companies that they've accumulated over time. And maybe it's because management style doesn't let each of these companies flourish. They kind of try to create a common culture and they put too much, uh, too much, you know, control over them or something. I, I'm not sure, but Berkshire Hathaway does a marvelous job of sharing certain kinds of resources and centralizing certain kinds of services, but giving uh, latitude to their operating companies and maybe other companies don't do a good enough job at it. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of like that. And you've seen it when companies get so big is that, you know, you lose, so, so to speak, the passion of that entrepreneur that has grown the thing. And all of a sudden, well, you know, I mean, a private equity firm A is coming in and then all of a sudden the bean counters come out. and Well, we need to turn this thing around and get a big score in two to three years. You know, I mean, it, it, the culture certainly does change. You know, so you gotta you gotta make sure that when you when you are a an executive and you're gonna go through this process that you're comfortable with the private equity firms you're working with and they share your core values and that they're gonna look at your company in the way in which you would like to grow your company. You know, talking about private equity, I know I know you do some private equity deals. I've been in that business for 30 years, really. Um, it seems to me like uh, one of the things that would help a lot is compensation strategies that enrich everyone instead of just enriching, yeah. you know, some people. Uh, you know, have you seen any really good models or have you, you know, run across anything that addresses that? Um, there are, yeah, you know, there, there are models that it's as you know when you start getting down and there's no nice way to say this if you're going to take a risk and and be in the leadership and a private equity situation uh it is a big risk you're on the seat and if you don't perform you're out and and that's part of the reason why and you could lose your investment really really quickly and uh you know, I mean, that's part of that. I mean, I personally believe that in order to really effectively grow, you need to compensate the whole team. The whole company needs to be bought in and they need to be moving down the, uh, uh, the highway all together under one mission, under one vision in order to uh, grow in a very, very strong manner. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, listen, I, I think that the chief executive... Uh, who's taking all the risks that you identify, which is absolutely correct, uh, would, would be advantaged. I mean, it would be a substantial advantage to that person to make sure that the people at the bottom, you know, all get excited about whatever they're going to get if the thing works out. It just, it just seems to me like, you know, sometimes uh, we expect the people at the bottom to do all the work and the people at the top get the money. And uh, if you gave a little bit of that money to the people fun. at the bottom, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree. I mean, it's just too damn much money at the top and they're making, I'm just being candid about it. I mean, how much money do you really need? And, and, and you don't need it. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I'm someone and in business, I gave away up to 39% of my profit to back into charity and, and what have you. And, and guys say to me, you know, go over 10%. You're out of your mind, Radlow. And I said, okay. Fine. You think I'm out of my mind, I'm out of my mind. But all the employees in our companies were always compensated very directly and way the company grew, the way they in their area grew. And it was a very nice formula 
because it kept everybody on the same page and it also kept everybody accountable. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, I just, I would hope that to me, if it was me, it just seems like it makes a lot of sense to uh, incentivize the people at the bottom and get them working a little harder. So, Hey, listen, on, on a different topic, um, are there any great uh, disruptive strategies and renovation strategies that you've run across? You know, what do, what do you see in uh, sharp companies do? People that, you know, we talk about the inside track. Who's got the inside track on, on really cool ways of making some of this stuff happen? Well, it's the, the ones that have really been successful. And there are, there are a lot. I take a look at, um, I look at Mod Pizza, for example, and the way, way his family and Scott has turned that, that into, he's putting up 100 restaurants a year by putting a healthy pizza out. And he sustainably treats his employees and they're all family to him. And it is just wonderful. And he did it, he did it priorly with Seattle Coffee. And he started from close to nothing and he just grew that up and then he ended up selling it. And he said, when he sold out, he said, David, I want to let you know this. I sold to a company that had the same values that I had. He sold to Starbucks, right? So, I mean, it, there are people out there with sustainable strategies that are growing and are doing it very, very successfully. Well, you know what that and, makes me think? Here, here's, you know, the world has changed. The world is not the same as it was in the 80s or the 90s, which was a a very selfish time in the United States. I mean, it was really a lot of greed, a lot of Wall Street money got made, Not maybe not even as much as now because of just the way that the markets work. But uh, the world has become a little softer. And what you're describing in, in, this, uh, in this guy that run, ran that operation is, is a certain genuine con- concern for the, the people that made up the, the family, the company, the company, uh, you know, and I think of that way, if you think of them as a family. So, uh, you know, and it seems like he was uh, handsomely rewarded for that attitude of genuine concern. And, and I think there's a lot of companies that are bringing an 80s and a 90s uh, attitude into a 2020 world. Yeah. And listen, there are positive things that, you know, I, I salute, you know, Ben Carson uh, Jr. for his fulcrum funds that, you know, because that whole structure is all about sustainably giving back while they go after uh, reducing the, uh, the racial wealth gap, but they do it through capitalism. They do it through bringing people up and giving people opportunities and uh, making sure that, that a percentage of the profit goes back sustainably to the communities that they're in. So uh, the companies that are doing the right thing we just need to talk about them more in a positive way. And because there's plenty of people that aren't doing it the right way. You know, there are some that really are. And I'm just delighted I've been able to meet some of them along the way. Well, listen, and we're delighted to have the opportunity to meet you. You've, you've given us the inside track, the best, smartest, shortest, fastest way to uh, really uh, innovate, growth, disrupt the, the kind of attitudes that are necessary to be successful uh, and I just appreciate you sharing your concepts and your thoughts with uh, our audience and, and with our show. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Well, listen, we're, and, we're glad to have you and uh, hope you'll stay in touch with us. Okay. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joe Block. 
For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.